This episode of Food Psych is brought to you by my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. If you're ready to break free from diet culture and reclaim the life it stole from you, learn more and sign up at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. Welcome to Food Psych, a podcast about intuitive eating, health at every size, body liberation, and taking down diet culture. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm an anti-diet registered dietitian, certified intuitive eating counselor, and author of the forthcoming book, Anti-Diet, Reclaim Your Time, Money, Well-Being, and Happiness Through Intuitive Eating, which is available for pre-order now. Join me here every week as I talk with interesting people from all walks of life about their relationships with food and their bodies. And by the way, on this show, we bleep out diet culture stuff like weight and calorie numbers, but we don't censor swear words or other adult language, so listener discretion is advised. Hey there, welcome to episode 210 of Food Psych. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and today I'm talking with Jay Aprileo, a fat activist and founder of the website Comfy Fat. We discuss how to find comfort in a larger body without weight loss, super important topic, right? How improving accessibility for fat people can benefit people of all sizes, how fat phobia shows up in progressive spaces and in healthcare, how Jay learned to embrace their non-binary identity without shrinking their body, and so much more. It's a great conversation. I can't wait to share it with you in just a moment. But first, I'll answer this week's listener question, which is from a listener named Marie, who writes, I recently have found out that I have plantar fasciitis. When I've looked up the causes and treatments, weight gain slash weight loss is something that I consistently see coming up. I've been recovering over the last few years from several years of eating disorders and disordered eating, and have gained weight in my recovery as as many people do. I've been feeling very strong in my recovery, but this is sending me for a loop. I'm trying not to go down the rabbit hole of blaming myself and my weight gain for this, but I'm finding it difficult when it shows up in so many resources about plantar fasciitis. Do you have any advice for remaining weight neutral when dealing with a diagnosis like this? Thank you so much. So thanks, Marie, for that great question. And I have so many thoughts, but before I jump into answering, just my standard disclaimer that these answers and this podcast in general are for information and educational purposes only and are not a substitute for individual medical or mental health advice. So first of all, Marie, I want to send you so much empathy. I know how triggering it must be to have this kind of information popping up when you're searching about a diagnosis like this. And I also know how painful plantar fasciitis is because I myself have it. More on that in a few minutes. I will say that this kind of stuff you're seeing online, though, about plantar fasciitis, I never know, by the way, whether it's fasciitis, fasciitis, plantar, plantar, like people say it all different kinds of ways. So I'm just going to pick away and stick with it. I'm going to say plantar fasciitis. Okay, so plantar fasciitis all the stuff that you're seeing written online about it is just more diet culture BS, right? It's the same kind of cultural milieu that produces weight loss recommendations for really every health condition you can think of, right? 
But the truth is, even if it seems like having increased weight on your feet would trigger plantar fasciitis, and for those who don't know, plantar fasciitis is an inflammation of the fascia in your feet. The fascia are like the lining of, or I guess the sort of capsule surrounding the muscles. So it's like the muscles in your your arch of your foot. The lining of that or the, the capsule around that gets inflamed and it hurts. It causes a lot of pain. So it might seem like having increased weight on your feet would trigger that because it's putting more pressure on the muscle and that therefore weight loss is the answer, right? That's what diet culture frames it as. But the reality is that we don't have any safe, sustainable way for people to lose weight, period, no matter the reason, right? We know the statistics on dieting are grim, and we talk about that here on this podcast all the time. We talk about how there's substantial research showing that 95 to 98% of people who intentionally lose weight regain all of it within five years, and up to two-thirds of those people regain more weight than they lost, right? I go into all of that science in my book. I've also gone into a lot of it in the podcast in the past, so you can dig into back episodes. But in my book, I really tell the story of all this science, including the story behind that statistic of 95 to 98% of diets fail and where that originated with some really great science. So you can pre-order my book to get all of that information, that great, juicy, fascinating story on all the science, plus all the scientific references in one place. You can pre-order my book now at christyharrison.com slash book. We'll put links to that in the show notes too. But the research really shows there's no sustainable and safe way for people to lose weight. There just isn't a known way to make almost anyone's body smaller long-term. And there's no way to make anyone's body smaller without causing serious damage to their relationship with food and often their overall well-being as well. That 2 to 5% of people who are quote-unquote successful at losing weight and keeping it off, they still have significant damage to their mental well-being and often their physical well-being too, such that a lot of those quote-unquote success stories, those weight loss success stories, end up having really serious disordered eating. And I talked to some people on the podcast who were in that boat, Glennis Oyston, way back in, I think it was episode 60-something, I don't know the exact episode number, and then Carrie Dennett, more, much more recently, who was in episode 120-something. So definitely check those out if you want to hear more about this elusive, quote-unquote, weight loss unicorn and their experience of how disordered their relationship with food and their body is in order to support that supposed success, right? So long and short of it, we really don't have a way to make anyone lose weight permanently without doing serious damage. And it doesn't matter why you're trying to lose weight either. So our bodies don't know or care why we might be trying to lose weight. They just know they're in danger when we lose weight. So whether the reason for weight loss is ostensibly improving your health and improving your comfort, like in situations like managing plantar fasciitis, right? Or whether the reason is aesthetics or anything else you can think of, the same reason really holds true across the board, which is that intentional weight loss feels like famine to your body, which is why it's unsustainable and harmful. Plus, I will say in specific regard to plantar fasciitis, it definitely is not something that only happens to higher weight people or even smaller bodied people who've gained weight. Thin people and people who haven't gained any weight get plantar fasciitis too. Case in point, me, right? As I mentioned before, I have it myself. And do you know when it first showed up for me when I first got plantar fasciitis? When I was in my eating disorder, when I was at the lowest weight I've ever been in my adult life, I was not gaining weight. I was losing weight or maintaining a very low weight, a suppressed weight for my body. And I was diagnosed with plantar fasciitis and I had terrible pain in my feet. 
So plantar fasciitis really is triggered primarily by overuse of your feet. And that's something that people often do when they're caught up in diet culture and over-exercising, which I was at the time, or it can build up over a period of years to where you get plantar fasciitis, even if you're not, you don't think you're quote-unquote over-exercising, but you've just really overtaxed your feet over a long period of time, right? It can also happen to people who wear shoes without the proper arch support or shoes that are really uncomfortable, like heels, high heels. And that is something that a lot of women and femmes do in our society because we want to look cute. And quote unquote cute in our culture really means torturous when it comes to shoes, right? And that's a legacy of patriarchy and it's oppression of feminine folks. I don't think it's any coincidence that quote unquote cute shoes or quote unquote beautiful feet are feet that are really twisted and contorted into terrible positions that are really bad for your actual feet, your bone structure, your muscles, your fascia, and all of it. It's really oppressive. The shoes that we wear in the name of fashion are really a form of oppression. And do you know what my doctor prescribed to me when I was diagnosed with plantar fasciitis? It was not weight loss because I live in a smaller body and then I was in even an even smaller body, right? And I don't get the horrible weight stigmatizing treatment from doctors that my larger bodied friends get. I didn't get it then. I don't get it now, now that I'm recovered. So instead of weight shaming me, right, and telling me to lose weight, my doctor gave me evidence-based medicine for plantar fasciitis. He prescribed rest, resting my feet, not doing too much, trying not to stand for long stretches at a time, rolling my arches out on a foam or wooden roller, which is incredibly painful, but like deliciously painful and is, is this great massage that really, really helps. He also recommended stopping wearing high heels or shoes without the proper support. And good old-fashioned ibuprofen for when the condition flares up, right? Because it's a chronic condition that can come and go. And, you know, if I do all of that stuff, it really works, right? If I, do, if I take all of his recommendations, it works. And sometimes my feet still get aggravated if I do too much or if I sort of make an exception and wear a heel to a wedding or something like that. But if I do those things my doctor prescribed, it helps, my husband also happens to have plantar fasciitis and got basically the same prescription from his doctor, plus the recommendation to use a compression sock, like a, a sock that sort of just holds his arch in place whenever he's going to be doing something on his feet a lot, which he sometimes has to do for his work. And again, he got those evidence-based recommendations because he also lives in a smaller body and is not subjected to the bigoted weight stigmatizing treatment that people in larger bodies get at the doctor's office and all over society. We often talk about thin privilege as the privilege to be treated with respect and compassion wherever you go. And that, that's true. It is a privilege to live in a thin body and have those things. But honestly, it's, it's a human right. It's something that all people should get. And so it's not that thin people are necessarily getting special treatment that's like extra special awesome. It's just that thin people are getting the kind of treatment that everybody should get. And larger bodied people are getting terrible treatment that is shaming them and reducing their self-esteem and making them feel bad and making them stressed out, which actually leads to worse health outcomes down the line than if they didn't have that stress of discrimination being put on them. So really, people in larger bodies need to get that kind of evidence-based treatment that people in smaller bodies get by default. So I would really recommend finding a doctor who will give you that evidence-based medicine, evidence-based treatments for your plantar fasciitis that don't involve weight loss, right? A doctor who will just leave your weight entirely out of the equation. 
And seeing a doctor rather than just self-diagnosing and doing your own thing is also important because a doctor can diagnose if you have other conditions going on that might be in addition to your plantar fasciitis or aggravating your plantar fasciitis, like flat feet or fallen arches or a stress fracture or stuff like that, that you can't diagnose yourself. So if you do go to a doctor and they do make it about your weight, you can try setting a boundary with them and say that you'll talk about every possible treatment other than weight loss, right? And if they somehow try to bring food into the equation, which, you know, doctors are all trying to do these days, haven't really seen it much with plantar fasciitis, but I feel like it's only a matter of time. So if they somehow try to prescribe a diet to help your feet, which is ridiculous, say no to that too, right? And set the boundary around that too. And if they won't honor that boundary, then find another doctor who will. Because remember, doctors work for you, not the other way around. And you deserve compassionate, truly evidence-based care for any and every health condition you encounter, which means not being prescribed weight loss. And that goes for everyone across the weight spectrum. You deserve to not be prescribed weight loss, even if you're in the very largest body. So you deserve evidence-based medicine that is not going to prescribe a supposed cure that actually does more harm than good, which weight loss does. So I hope that helps. And if you want to submit your own question for a chance to have it answered on an upcoming episode of the podcast, you can go to christyharrison.com slash questions. That's christyharrison.com slash questions and submit your question there. And then I wanted to share an exciting update about my book, which is that we now have some awesome bonuses we're giving out to people who pre-order the book. So when you pre-order now, you'll get a complimentary enrollment to my five-day Taste of Intuitive Eating mini course. You'll also get a great deal on my 13-week Intuitive Eating Fundamentals course, which is the course I'm always telling you about here. And you'll get an exclusive bonus ebook that's in the works right now as we speak, which includes a wealth of actionable tips, a concise guide to the anti diet philosophy, a timeline of influential moments in diet culture, and a never before published bonus chapter of anti diet. So to get all of this, just go to christyharrison.com slash book to pre-order the book first, and then submit your proof of purchase at christyharrison.com slash book bonus. That's christyharrison.com slash book bonus to get all of this great stuff that I mentioned. And if you already pre-ordered the book a while ago, thank you so much, first of all. I really appreciate your support. And you're eligible for these bonuses too. So anyone who pre-orders at any time before the release date on December 24th or actually December 26th in the UK can get these bonuses. So just go to christyharrison.com slash book bonus to claim yours. That's christyharrison.com slash book bonus. This episode of Food Psych is brought to you by Let a Podcast Out, an online course about how to create a podcast from my friend and three-time past Food Psych guest, Katie Dalebout. If you've always wanted to launch your own podcast but didn't know where to start, join this course for literally everything you need to know to create a kick-ass pod that's uniquely you. I even share my podcasting tips as a guest instructor, so if you've ever wanted to learn from me how I do it, what I recommend for podcasting, you'll definitely want to check this out. Just go to letapodcastout.club and use our special offer code FOODPSYCH for $25 off your enrollment. That's letapodcastout.club and enter offer code F-O-O-D-P-S-Y-C-H at checkout. And now without any further ado, let's go talk to Jay Aprileo. So tell me about your relationship with food growing up. That is a <laughs> such a broad and 
heavy story, I feel like. So let's get into it. (laughs) My earliest memories are actually of being in foster care. I was in foster care from when I was about five years old to eight years old. And one of the main focuses of my stay in foster care felt at the time like it was about weight loss and about dieting. And that really impacted me long term. So I, I have memories of BMI charts and doctor's offices and scales and being given different food than the other kids in the home. And so I was on a diet at five from the foster care, well, the foster parents' perspective, that was what was the most necessary, the most important thing to focus on at that time. And I really, it made me make this connection that I was in foster care because I was fat, which very like traumatic and long lasting effects of making that kind of connection um, because I, I didn't know why I was in foster care. I actually still don't know. And um, it wasn't until I was 16 or 17 in therapy that I sort of had that breakthrough of realizing, oh, I've thought this whole time that I was in foster care because I was overweight and my parents couldn't take care of me. And it was such a big, scary issue that I had to be taken away and go onto serious diet programs and weight loss journeys at five. And that definitely impacted my relationship with food and my relationship with my body. I learned very early on that I was different than everyone else and that my fat body was a problem. And I was, I mean, I was a chunky kid. (laughs) I was also a very active kid. And so now reflecting back, it definitely gives me these feelings of like, what would my relationship with my body and with food have been had I not been taught those messages at such an early age, you know? And it's such a such a vulnerable age too for that kind of cognitive leap that you made that so many kids make of like, this bad thing happened and therefore it's my fault. And then specifically around, it happened because my body is too big, right? Because that's, I can totally understand and like have this sort of visceral five-year-old inside me that's empathizing with that that leap. Oh yeah, I mean, I look at my, well, she's now six-year-old niece, but when she was five, that really like struck me to look at her and just think like that a five-year-old should not be concerned about their weight or their body or their what they're eating even. I think a five-year-old should be a five-year-old. Totally. They should not know about nutrition. They should not know about calories or portion size or whatever it is that is being taught in diet plans these days. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I didn't, it didn't even register to me that that was so not okay until, until being with Carissa and having this niece through her and really looking at her and being like, wow, that's just too young. And I, it, my heart breaks when I think of her ever having uh, any feelings about (laughs) needing to diet or changing her body. And it sounds like the the foster family, you know, was just really bought into diet culture and they thought they were doing the right thing by taking you to this weight loss, putting you on these weight loss plans. But it had the effect of just marginalizing you from the other kids and distancing you from your own body too. Oh, for sure. I mean, distancing me from my body is like one of the biggest hurdles that I've, that I'm still working on recovering from. I really, in order to survive emotionally throughout that experience and beyond, you know, in school and with other kids and peers and 
all of the various life things that happen that make life stressful and scary. Like I really had to separate myself from my body so that I wouldn't be faced with the amount of shame that fat phobia, like the internalized fat phobia was, was making me feel otherwise. So I, I like for years, I didn't look in mirrors. <laughs> I did what I could to not be in touch with myself. So I was into sports at one time and just completely stopped doing them when it started to get uncomfortable. And when I started to be faced again with the fact that I was different and that I looked different and that my body looked different while I moved. And so I really like, I don't, I don't look back on that and think, you know, I, I can understand why I need it needed to be that way for me to uh, just push through and get through school years and whatnot. But uh, yeah, I really, I really am still working on recovering from that and figuring out how to be present in my body in a more liberated way. Yeah. And I think that's, it's so important to like acknowledge the coping mechanism of that too, right? That like that sort of disconnection from your body helped you survive, helped you get through those painful situations, like you said, because if you had been in touch and been present in your body, it might've been too painful to bear. And so something in you was like, run away. Right. Absolutely. And this was, I mean, at a very different time than young people are going through right now. Like I am so impressed with young people's ability to, to jump on board with like body positivity and saying, fuck it to diet culture. And it wasn't like that, you know, 15 years ago. Um, at least I didn't have access to anybody talking about it. You know, like it wasn't, we weren't all over the internet like we are now. And so I didn't, I didn't have the language or the, or any like role models really of people who were happy to be in their bodies as with larger bodies, you know? And how did that play out for you as time went on? Like uh, when you came back from foster care and you didn't have that sort of immediate diet culture influence, was it still, was it mostly internalized at that point? And so you were continuing to do it to yourself or did you have other diet culture influences coming in from outside as well? Yeah. I mean, I, so for as long as I can remember, I have as a child, I had an issue with like sneaking food. And I think that was just with feeling that scarcity and that shame around eating um, and being hungry. My parents were like, they are so supportive and loving. Um, and they also are influenced by diet culture. And so they would see me feeling sad and hurt about kids picking on me in school. And they would think like, how can we motivate you to work out more? You know, because that's what they thought was the way to handle that. And I don't necessarily blame them for that, though. I, I do know that I would hope that they've learned better ways of approaching that kind of situation. But yeah, I mean, I, so I had a sneaking food situation. I would binge a lot. And I I did develop like it was very disordered. And in my teen years, I started like binging and purging. And that lasted for, I mean, up until a few years ago. So a good like seven or eight years of a binge and purge relationship with food that went on unnoticed. And I didn't even know how bad it was because I felt like that was kind of acceptable. 
And I believe that I do believe that I felt cues from adult people in my life that that was acceptable as well, whether that be my family or my medical providers. I do feel like there was a a shaminess about eating that I picked up on and that severely impacted my relationship to being able to just eat normally. <laughs> and yeah, it's, I feel like there is this sort of like by any means necessary idea for people, you know, people in larger bodies are told to lose weight by any means necessary. And usually it ends up being by very disordered means. And yet there's applause and accolades and praise that comes with that because doctors and healthcare, you know, all healthcare providers who are really steeped in diet culture, I think tend to look the other way or like plug their ears when a patient tells them, well, I've been eating X, Y, and Z amount of food or skipping meals or doing, you know, all these disordered behaviors. I think there's not a lot of awareness around how, how bad that is, how harmful that is. Right. I mean, I've even had friends who've said that they've opened up to doctors and said, I, you know, am anorexic and had the doctors say things that sounded like, well, what, whatever you're doing is working if they've lost a certain amount of weight or whatever. So it's definitely the medical industry is, has a long way to go with how to treat fat people, how to treat people in larger bodies and with doing away with the toxicity that is diet culture and healthism as well. Yes. Yeah. Healthism, I feel like is kind of the next frontier like it's crept into it's so entwined with diet culture now that it's really hard sometimes to even recognize diet culture for what it is because it goes under this guise of health and wellness and then people don't see it as being rooted in fat phobia and being rooted in like demonizing some foods and elevating others which is just a product of this racist fat phobic belief system yeah absolutely and we've we've attached so much morality to health like that's supposed to be one of our morals. It's like, oh, as long as you're healthy, you know, happy and healthy. <laughs> it's like, that's what makes a good person. As long as you're happy and healthy, I don't care. And it's like, that should not be a prerequisite to respect and love and kindness and access to care. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, the health is not any sort of prerequisite. Health is, you know, a resource that comes and goes for all of us. And to be you know, to have your morality staked on that is just, it's really a recipe for obsession and compulsion around food and exercise. Oh, 100%. So it sounds like your your relationship with food became really disordered and, and was not recognized as such. So you were just kind of struggling in silence. Right. Did you get praise for it ever? Did you get like positive reinforcement for the dieting behaviors? Yes. And I mean, and no. So I grew up what I consider to be like in poverty, though I know I had friends at the time that were even more severely impacted by poverty. But where I grew up was it's like a very impoverished area. And my family was just it just consists of me and my my parents. Um, I got a small one. And we ate very much like the American poor type of meals like meat and potatoes and chili stews and and things like that and and vegetables weren't part of it and I feel like that has been a, a hard change for me to find out balance like what do I really enjoy as opposed to what am I attached what am I creating more meaning to than it is what am I feeling like I should be including in my life and what shouldn't be and I definitely picked up on 
cues from my parents in that way. I know that, especially my mom, I feel like her generation really had a lot of pressure to be thin and to be good. And there was, there's a lot of like language around good foods and bad foods. And you're being good if you've eaten well, and you're being bad if you deviate from your diet plan. And there was a lot of that language. Uh, I remember as a kid, and I remember picking up on it and just being like, this is so strange that she feels so strongly that she should not eat dinner because she's being good because she had a large lunch, even though she's hungry. I remember questioning that. And, but still some parts of me taking that in and internalizing it and feeling like, okay, well, these are the rules around what's normal and what's okay and how people should act around food and eating and even like, times to be eating and how often and how much. I think that's really so important to recognize too how much parents' behaviors influence their children's relationships with food, even though they might not say it, they might not be saying, you need to avoid food like this, or you're bad for eating X, Y, and Z. You still observe her relationship with food in that way. And that that does so much impact, you know, having those role models can impact how we go forward in our own relationships with food. Right. Absolutely. I mean, intentionally or not, these are messages that we're picking up and, and those messages are a product of the culture that they grew up in too. So, I mean, it's, it's sad to me even to think that like, that's how people, my mom's age, their brains are hardwired. Yeah. Because that, I mean, God, the pressures on especially women and people assigned female at birth back then were even greater. I feel like it's, I mean, it just changes every generation. I feel like the pressures are different and Maybe who's to say if it's who has it worse in terms of those pressures, because now our generation's body pressures are just of a different breed. It's, you know, might seem a little less strict, and yet it's still this narrow window of like body type that people are supposed to fit in. And also like the food rules and what's so-called good and bad is also just really problematic. But yeah, I think back then it was so much more, our parents' generation was much more straightforward diet culture. It was much more like, these are good foods, these are bad foods, eat less, skip food, you know, like just kind of like more overt in a lot of ways. Yes, absolutely. And I'm curious too how like gender played into it because you write a lot about gender and the intersection of gender and body size. And did you know early on that you were non-binary or how did that unfold for you? Sure. I know that there's like this very popular narrative and very common even narrative, I think, of trans folks. I do identify as trans who like knew from birth that they were trans. And I think that that's a totally valid experience and important. And it's been important to have something that gets, it really does. It's a very digestible story for the general public, I think, to believe that we are meant to be a certain way and that way is from birth and it's all biological and we can prove it because this person knew when they were a child. And I do think that there are people who definitely like feel that way. And also I am not one of those people. So I, (laughs) I, I was born assigned female at birth and I didn't necessarily have any sort of feelings about gender until I was in my late teens. And that's, I really do think that comes back to the internalized fat phobia and trying to distance myself from my body. And I like to make sure that I add the note that I know that bodies do not equal gender identity. 
so, but for me, being distanced from my body made it so that I wasn't even thinking about what feels comfortable, what feels like me, what feels authentic, because I was really just trying to like put on a paper sack, you know, like a, like a potato sack and just like exist through the world without anyone noticing me. Like that really felt like the goal for a lot of my life until I was in my late teens and, and YouTube was getting really big. And, and there were a lot of transition stories, a lot of like female to male transition stories and like montages or whatever it's called videos on YouTube. And I would get like stuck in cycles of just watching and watching and like being so amazed by the the change and, and being so feeling like it was so profound to know like who you are and to find it and to just be coming out of your shell. And I, I really wanted that very badly. And I, I didn't know if it was through that venue, but I knew something was off. And then I, I put it off for a few years because it's scary. It would be very overwhelming and very scary. And then um, I would close my laptop and just, you know, cry and myself to sleep and then ignore it because it was too big. You know, it was too big of a thing to tackle at the time. Yeah. Well, especially it sounds like you were also dealing with the fat phobia too at that point. So the weight of both of those things must have been enormous. Right. It's it's really hard to feel like you you can't escape the bad feelings you have about yourself. Like like the relationship you have with yourself is the most important one and also can be the most damaging because you can't escape it. So even when I get I get caught up in looking things up online and figuring out like what I wanted and who I could be, it got overwhelming and got scary and also felt like impossible because I was a fat teenager looking at this and only seeing very thin, masculine, white, able-bodied trans people like showing their stories. And that's what would turn me off from it. And what would snap me out of it is thinking like, oh, I'll never look like that. And I would just get so discouraged by that. And that's why I didn't tackle it until I was in my early 20s and like actually went to a therapist that was trans himself. And it was to focus on my gender identity. And I started working at a nonprofit where there was a lot of queer people. This was in Massachusetts, where I'm from. And I learned about non-binary gender identities. And I, I, I tried on some new pronouns. I tried on they, them pronouns. And things just felt like such a relief. It just felt right. So, I mean, for me, it definitely wasn't like I knew as a child that something was off or anything at all. Like I was just in survival mode and being able to grow up where I did was a privilege for sure, because I'm not sure where I would be at if I didn't have those other people in that community of queer folks who were also non-binary to show me the, the world of possibilities that were out there that I could explore and find what was right. And I think that's a I want that to be like a story and a narrative that we talk more about is that you don't have to know, you don't have to decide on anything. You can see different genders, different sexualities as options to try out and find out what feels authentic. Like I really feel like we have to be more accepting of the fact that we can grow and evolve and change and, and find where we fit, but we have to be accepting and kind to ourselves along the way and not rigid. Yeah, that's so important, especially because like, I think that narrative of, you know, I always knew, right, it's like that we hear that for like queer people, we hear that for trans people. And we hear that also for people who are like, 
virtuosic in some way. Like I always knew I wanted to be a concert violinist or I always knew I wanted to be an actor or whatever it is. And I feel like that just erases the possibility of self-discovery for so many people. I know for me, I didn't have like the gender identity stuff or the sexuality stuff, but I had the what is my place in the world supposed to be stuff. And the narrative that like you always know and just like what you're meant to do in the world will find you at a young age and then you just go with it and I had friends around me who had that like the concert violinist thing was like I knew someone who played violin from the age of three you know and I'm just like I never had that thing and so I felt like there wasn't a place for me or who was I and the possibility of discovery and finding out along the way I think just gets shut down by those kinds of narratives yeah absolutely I mean that I also found that very damaging in high school, especially because, you know, around junior year, everyone's applying to colleges and deciding what they're going to do with their lives. And and a lot of people knew and I didn't. And I'm sure now they're not doing what they thought they knew they were doing going to do. But I really it did impact me. I really felt like strongly like, why don't I know what I meant for and everyone else does? What does that mean about me? And that just leaves so little room for the reality, which is that we have absolutely no idea which doors are going to open where and when. Totally. And being in the right environment with people who are accepting, I think has so much to do with that too, right? Of like allowing you to become who you are, allowing you to see yourself reflected in other people and to see that what you are interested in or have the capacity for is valued rather than being shut down and sort of like pushed aside. Right. Absolutely. That's such a blessing that you found that that community. A total blessing. And you said you grew up in Massachusetts, right? So that's like a pretty progressive part of the country. And yeah, I can just imagine if you had grown up somewhere else or all the people listening maybe and people out there who are like in a, an environment that is very antithetical to progressivism and, you know, sort of retrograde politically and doesn't accept trans people or queer people and have a community there, how painful and damaging that would be. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely been interesting to be somebody from Western Massachusetts, so not even the city Boston side, but like the rural, it's super not diverse racially, like it's mostly white people, but sexuality and gender wise, there's just so much diversity. There's a lot of like women's colleges and stuff. And I feel like that has created an environment of just like, there's a lot of activism and social justice so being somebody who grew up there and had that that privilege and then moving to Kansas has been, it's been quite the difference. I realized the other day I met with a, a friend and she talked about one of her old friends who lives somewhere else and she used they, them pronouns for that person. And my like, my ears perked up and I, I, I got excited because I don't hear anybody else around here talking about their non-binary friends. <laughs> which is wild because, you know, I, I have a lot of non-binary friends back in mass and we're just, I mean, it's, I don't think it's just because when you're in a queer culture, like I really think it's a big group in Western mass. And so it was definitely eye-opening to me to think like, wow, if I was growing up here right now and feeling like my gender was, I wasn't able to be authentic in it and didn't have anybody to look to, that would be very, very difficult. Yeah, it might have just been locked away from you, right? Like something that you never got to explore in, in a way that you felt kind of distanced from yourself. Right. Thankfully, there's the internet. 
Mm-hmm. That's true. <laughs> the internet is, yeah, such a great place for that sort of thing, that, that kind of self-discovery. Right. I'm curious then about your journey with that and how it intersected or dovetailed with your journey to accept your body size. Because, I mean, I talk about this and think about this a lot where like even in the most progressive communities in the country right now, I think there's still so much fat phobia. There's still much, so oh, much yeah. unchecked fat phobia that, you know, goes under the guise sometimes of like food justice, right? It's like, we got to fix the food deserts because quote unquote obesity, right? We have to like, it's just horrifying how it's allowed to exist without any sort of examination or any understanding of how this is actually just another form of oppression. And of course, then there's the side that doesn't care about social justice and the people who are diametrically opposed to social justice who are also fat phobic. So there's kind of, it's like in terms of finding a place where fat phobia doesn't exist it's really a very small community right now and i mean i don't say doesn't exist but where people are actively fighting against it i should say right absolutely it's definitely discouraging when you when you feel like you're amongst the most progressive people that you could possibly be around and very politically active and then you find that that's still something that they're like behind on because it feels so obvious especially to me and everybody i surround myself with so Accepting my gender and accepting my body size happened sort of in a parallel kind of way. So they didn't necessarily, the moment didn't intersect of when I sort of figured it out, but they go hand in hand. So when I first remember feeling like empowered in my body was when I took a few kickboxing classes. And this was in my early 20s. I had already heard of like body positivity and Tumblr was the big thing at that point. And I was into it, but didn't, but wasn't necessarily, I wouldn't say I was present with my body. And I started taking a kickboxing one-on-one coaching class. And I learned for the first time how to be present and happy with it, with my body, how to stop paying attention to what my body feels like when it moves and to feel powerful. And that was sort of when I first felt like, okay, maybe maybe I could reconnect with myself and what kind of doors might that open? You know, I used to really love sports. Do I love movement now? Do I love walks? What do I love? You know, what feels like me? I, I really feel like taking those classes kind of brought me back down to being centered with myself. And at that point, I also felt like I feel strong enough to look into gender stuff and to look into how I feel about my body and, and be critical of what those feelings are. So, I mean, we talk about how gender isn't related to body parts. Right. And, and that brings up the question of like, if I feel like I'm trans, do I think that I need to medically transition? Which parts of that would I want? What attracts me to it? Why would I want to do that? Who am I doing that for? Is it because I feel like I need to feel safe and need to pass a certain way in society or am I feeling like I don't want my body to have certain parts or I want it to look a certain way for me so a lot of that is very intertwined because being a person of size who was assigned female birth at birth I have like a large chest and I have not necessarily a shape like a stereotypical you know traditional women's hourglass shape or anything but I have features that people very much identify as female and 
therefore I get misgendered a lot every single day, not just on the internet, but out in public. And it's still something I'm detangling. It's still something I'm learning how to navigate is figuring out I've accepted and I'm at peace with my body at the size that it's at. And I'm at peace with my non-binary identity. And now I'm thinking, is there something next? Is my desire to change any sort of body parts related to fat phobia at all? Is it because I think that changing my body makes more sense in some way than not? And where do my values align with those things? You know, because I want to challenge any like toxic beauty standards. I want to be my own person and be myself and be happy and accepting of that. And I also can recognize that for some people, the like transition of body and and even any kind of work that anyone can have done to their body, whether it's dyeing their hair or lifting their lashes or <laughs> lip injections or anything, tanning, like these are things that we use to express ourselves in the way that we we want to show, like in how we want to be in the world. And so that's still something, honestly, that I'm thinking about a lot and trying to work through and figure out where I stand personally with my own body related to gender and body changes. I think that's such an important conversation and such, I'm so glad. Thank you for sharing all that because I think there is, again, this narrative, you know, the sort of prevalent narrative of trans identity is like, I just knew and then I transitioned and now I'm happy, right? Like I finally feel like I'm in the body that I was meant to have. And that's just not the reality for so many people. I talked with San Chang on the podcast, who's a non-binary trans psychologist, back in, I forget the episode number exactly, but it was like the 160s somewhere. And they were saying that a lot of people also have this experience of getting misgendered because of being fat and that there's so many beauty standards that we have are really tied up in fat phobia, even for trans people. Like even the idea that to look, quote unquote, look non-binary, you have to be sort of androgynous looking. And that means sort of a prepubescent person. And that if you don't look like that, then you're somehow passing less as non-binary or something. And that we really need to explode that narrative because that is so tangled up in fat phobia. Right. And like toxic masculinity and like the patriarchy. And stuff. <laughs> it's all, it's a mess that that narrative around what what non-binary looks like is so interesting to me because I know that like most of the representation online that I started seeing when looking into non-binary was that like thin, white, able-bodied, flat-chested, prepubescent-like type body. And the person that introduced me to um the idea of being non-binary is a like super feminine fat person who like loves to accentuate certain parts of their body that that I feel uncomfortable accentuating and so that really opened my eyes to to realizing like anything is non-binary anybody can be non-binary if they say they are they are you know yeah i think that's that's so important for people to hear too because it could help some kids listening or people listening who are experimenting with trying on that identity or thinking they might be non-binary, but like, oh, I can't possibly be if I'm in a larger body or this idea of like, I have to lose weight in order to align with my true gender, which 
uh, you know, breaks my heart. Like I, I sometimes would get referrals when I was seeing more one-on-one clients in private practice from well-meaning therapists who are like, I have a client who is a trans woman who thinks that she needs to lose weight in order to better align with her femininity. And then other therapists would be like, I have a client who's a trans man who thinks he needs to lose weight to better align with his masculinity. That was sort of taken as just a foregone conclusion. Like, well, of course, this is going to be a part of this person's transition is losing weight. Yeah. I mean, it, it really is. Like even me, I've been looking into like what top surgery might be like. And everybody I've talked to said that doctors almost always require weight loss before top surgery for larger patients. And I mean, even patients, I mean, even people who are much smaller than me have been told they need to lose like pounds to do surgery, which is not, I mean, for a fat person, that is not an amount that makes that big of a difference. So it's, it's jarring to me to think that that could be something that a medical professional who has power could hold over me. It's scary. That's really scary. And the the fact that weight loss is so contraindicated for well-being and for people's long-term health, right? It's just they like completely disregard that part. Right. They say it's because the reasons have been I've been told are because they're trying to shrink the liver for safety or something with surgery, which just makes me think, how do you know what size my liver is before looking? <laughs> like how what assumptions are you making about my fat body just because you think all fat bodies are the same? So true because, yeah, like you don't know anything about a person's internal organs by looking at them. And also it's so arbitrary to say like a certain amount of weight loss is going to somehow correct this supposed problem when, right, people, everybody has different size organs to begin with. And it sounds ridiculous. (laughs) It's completely ridiculous. (laughs) I've also heard that people think it's, uh, you know, medical providers and also like hospital systems and stuff think it's dangerous to operate on larger bodies, which really means, you know, a potential lawsuit because they they are nervous about their ability to do it properly. And I talked with Reagan Chastain, I think it was episode 119 about how surgery has not really evolved and surgeons are not really able to practice operating on fat bodies. And so when it comes time to be in practice and have fat bodies there to be operated on, they're not confident in their ability to do it. They've never been really trained on it. And the hospitals don't have the equipment or the capacity to handle people in larger bodies either. So it's like everybody's sort of just scared and backing away like okay you know i don't think we can handle this which is why the onus then falls on the person like oh you're you have to lose weight in order to be eligible for this surgery yeah i mean it's it's wild to me when i think about it because there are so many statistics out there from medical professionals from the government whoever the big the big wigs with the money and the power and the funding that talk about the quote-unquote obesity epidemic that are saying that it's like one third of the population is overweight. And it's like, okay, so you're not teaching doctors how to treat one third of the population. Right. Like if those statistics are real by your standards, then why are we not teaching them how much to dose a fat patient of anesthesia? Like that should not be a problem. Right. Totally. It's a huge percentage of people. And like, if it was any other population that was so underserved, despite being such a significant portion of the overall population, I think everyone would be up in arms and would be like, this is 
patently unjust, but because it's fat people, because it's larger bodied people, and that's considered in diet culture to be a matter of personal responsibility, it just is so easily kind of pushed back on the person. Like, well, it's your responsibility to change. That's just ludicrous. It is. Ugh. Well, and that kind of leads me to another topic that I really want to dig into with you, which is this idea of making the world more navigable and accessible for fat bodies and also making being able to be comfortable in your body moving through the world. I love that your website is called Comfy Fat. I think that's just so evocative and so brilliant at getting at like the feeling of safety and comfort in your body and and also how like I hear from so many people that the sticking point they have with health at every size and intuitive eating and anti-diet stuff is you know, I like, that's great, but I'm not comfortable in my body at this size. And in order to be comfortable in my body, I need to lose weight. That's the belief. So I'm curious to hear kind of your responses to that argument and some of the things you've learned in making your website and doing your work to help people be comfortable in larger bodies. Sure. So, I mean, to start off, I'll just talk about how Comfy Fat came to be. So it started as a hashtag that I started on Tumblr because I was noticing that with the body positivity movement sort of coming to a rise, at least in media, I know people had been doing the work already, but I hadn't been tuned into it. I was still noticing that a lot of fat people and especially like fat women were held to an incredibly high standard of beauty in order to be acceptable still, to be an acceptable fat. And I just felt like it sucks that we can't feel confident posting pictures of ourselves on the internet in a hoodie. Like thin people are allowed to even be considered fashionable in a hoodie and sweatpants. And we are as fat people seen as deviating from moral responsibilities. And so many assumptions are made about our bodies and lifestyle based on just being comfortable and not putting ourselves through so much work to look different. And that's not to shit on people who express gender in ways of like high fashion or wearing makeup or anything, but the the need to feel like the feeling like you have to in order to leave the house because of the judgments that be made on you if you don't. That's the thing that I took issue with. And so I started the, you know, hashtag comfy fat on all my photos and it was very liberating and very exciting. Um, and that's kind of where it it sat. And then I, I met Carissa and started thinking about what kind of work I would want to do. And I remembered Comfy Fat and I was like thinking about my experience flying and how she had taught me how to utilize like the passenger of size policy with Southwest Airlines and the fact that there were potential solutions to the problems that I had considered to making any situation like inaccessible. Like I had no idea that there were systems in place that I could work around situations that I thought were not for me. Southwest, by the way, the, the their passenger of size policy, do you want to just explain what that is a little bit? Oh, sure. So the Southwest Airlines specifically is who I fly with exclusively because of this passenger of size policy, which is that anybody who walks up to the ticketing agent when they've already bought a ticket and you go to like check in and maybe even check your bags. If you walk up there and you say, I need an extra seat, you can get an extra seat for free. And that means that they will, when they print out your ticket that you normally get, you'll also get a second ticket that says seat reserved. 
and that will go on the seat next to you and no one can sit there. It's your seat and you didn't have to pay for it. You don't have to worry about paying for it and getting reimbursed. It's just your seat. And everybody that works within Southwest, all the people from start to finish know of this policy. And I have never had any questions about it when I've brought it up. There are people who have expressed that that means somebody may be kicked off a flight at some point. I have never seen that happen. It's never been even close to that happening, I guess, in theory. They probably don't overbook their flights, right? Like if they have that policy, hopefully there are enough percentage of extra seats on each plane that makes that possible to do, which is... One would hope. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that would be amazing given you know the state of airlines today. Right. So part of the policy also includes that when you have that extra seat reserved ticket, that means you get to pre-board. And that's not something that they write on the ticket anywhere. So that's something you have to know and take advantage of on your own, which I don't agree with. They should put it on the ticket, but whatever. So before anybody else boards, you get to board with anybody with disabilities, anybody in a wheelchair. It's before families and stuff. And that allows you to make sure that there is an extra seat available for you, which is great. And then also, sometimes I guess it's possible that someone could, someone else could be kicked off a flight because you are allowed to have that seat. I'm not sure that that's very common. I think that's super rare. Um, but yeah, so that's the passenger of size policy with Southwest. That's fantastic. And that is so important to know. I feel like it's such a great resource for people to have because that is one thing that I hear a lot from people who are reluctant to give up the pursuit of weight loss is like, I don't want to have to buy another airplane seat or I don't want to risk getting into the, the category of fat where I would have to worry about that. My body is able to fit in one seat now, so I don't want to risk having to take up two seats or whatever. And having airlines have policies like that, I think is just a really humane way to address that, I, that issue that people are not all made the same size to, you know, fit into these tiny, tiny seats that, I mean, honestly, even for me, it's uncomfortable to fly certain airlines and like the seats are just shrinking further and further and further. And I just... Capitalism. Ugh, exactly. It's, yeah. Like at what point did people just revolt? But like we can't because we have to get where we need to go and it's, we're sort of over a barrel. Right. And that's the thing is I really didn't think that I was ever going to be somebody that was going to fly often because I had flown before and it had been miserable because I wasn't flying Southwest and I didn't know about any sort of accommodation. And then my mind was open and I was like, holy shit, like we can problem solve around accessibility issues. <laughs> I'm allowed to feel justified in using an elevator versus the stairs. It was just a very eye-opening experience to have that first time flying with Carissa, to be honest. She's so awesome. We should, we'll definitely uh, link to her episode in the show notes for this, this podcast too. For sure. So great. <laughs> And yeah, so then I thought, why don't I, why don't I talk about this experience? Why don't I talk about flying while fat? That was my first article that I wrote on my blog was just six tips for flying while fat based on my experience. And I thought comfy fat made sense because it was like more so it was more than just about feeling like I should be able to wear what I want and not be judged. But it was also about how can I feel comfortable in the world and that requires some problem solving and that requires finding ways to make it work in an inaccessible world. But the goal is to share the resources and share the information so that people do know it's possible and you don't have to hide away in your house and think that you're not allowed to go anywhere or that it's not possible. 
to be involved in life and to be engaged in life if that's what you want, you know? I love that. And what are some other resources you found that you think people should know about, especially anyone listening who is in a larger body feeling ashamed and feeling uncomfortable and feeling like they don't deserve to get out and do the things they want to do? Let's see. So I'm amazed at just how many people are doing similar work that I'm doing and in very specific niches. So there are like whole ass Instagram accounts dedicated to like fat scuba diving. Um, you know, and, and like fat traveling specifically, because my, though I do have travels on the end of my Instagram name, it's not necessarily just about traveling. It's more about like my diaries rather like my experiences. Um, so there's, there's so much available on the internet that I didn't expect, like how to navigate Disney world when you're a fat person, like there are guides, I think they're called like the Winnie the Pooh guides that are like how to navigate Disney as a fat person. And I think knowing that that's a possibility to even like do a Google search of like fat scuba, fat camping, fat yoga. These are things that people are talking about and have been, but now they're like written down somewhere and it's incredible. What else is there? Oh, I think that also another huge part of it, that's not necessarily like one resource, but that is a huge part of it. That's so important to work on is like self-advocacy. And for example, (laughs) seating in any restaurant or any place, like I have held back from going places for so long because I just was afraid. And for the most part, seating is very difficult for me because I'm a, a considered a super fat. Like I am on the higher end of the fat spectrum and any seats with chairs or any flimsy chairs like do not work for me. And I really have to have had to and continue to, to keep needing to work on like advocating for myself and feeling justified in asking for a different chair, which is possible and should be in my opinion, like, it's not like an accommodation. It's like that space was not made to be accessible to everyone. And it is their responsibility to find something that works for you. So I do feel feel like the advocacy thing is like, such a huge part of it that is so hard and scary at first. But once you like, get in the habit of it, and really find your confidence in in getting your needs met, it becomes so much easier. And then your world opens up because you think like, it's okay. Cause if I get there and I don't fit, I'll just like, I'll find another chair, you know, and not having that be like a catastrophic end of the world. I'm so embarrassed and ashamed of my body. It's not about that. It's about this space wasn't made with me in mind. That sucks. But like, I still want to go and do that thing. <laughs> so let's make it work. You know? I love that. Cause yeah, it is, it's like problem solving in an unjust world. Like you said, it's figuring out ways to get resources you need in a space that wasn't designed for you, but that should be, that should be made to accommodate everyone. And I think it sounds like for you that, and I think for a lot of people I've talked to who've had to work on this, the self-advocacy piece too, it's like getting to a place of recognizing the injustice and letting that be more of a driver for you and more motivating for you than any sort of shame about your body or needing to ask for this thing. Because at first, I mean, some, some of the people I've worked with on this issue, it's like both of those things are still there at first. They feel ashamed and they recognize the injustice and want to do the thing. And so are able to overcome the shame in order to ask for what they want. And I think that over time, as with anything involving shame, I think the more that you challenge the shame and 
ask for what you need and do the thing, the less and less the shame becomes because you realize like the world doesn't end. Nobody's mad at you or even if they are, who cares? Because fuck them. Yeah. And also like you get what you need. So that's its own reward that helps sort of validate the process too. Yeah, I agree. It definitely feels like that voice for me is getting smaller and smaller every single time that I advocate for myself. That like shamey voice is like so minimal compared to how it used to be. And that's mostly been because of like redirecting my brain and like rewiring it even to steer away from that negative self-talk and to use my mantras, you know, and, and remind myself that my body's not at fault here. Yeah, this is actually a product of an unjust culture. This is not your fault. And millions of people have the same experience and nobody's talking about it. Or, I mean, people are talking about it, but not like in this large scale way that would cause every institution, every restaurant, every airplane to have to change its seating or change its accommodations. No, you know, people aren't talking about it on that level yet because of the shame, because people are so, you know, even though there's millions of people in this situation, people don't feel okay opening up about it because of the fat phobia in our culture that, that prevents people from speaking up. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I'm also curious to talk about physical comfort in the sense of, you know, because one thing that I hear a lot on this comfort issue is it's hard for me to like clean myself. There's certain issues that are just more difficult in a larger body or it's hard. Like I deal with chafing or I deal with physical pain, right? In certain contexts. And so I love your resource and we'll link to this in the show notes too about fat hygiene, like must-haves for fat hygiene. But I'd love to just like hear you talk a little bit about that piece of it, that component of your experience and of the experience of living in a larger body that people don't really talk about as openly, probably also because of some shame around hygiene and body stuff. Right. Absolutely. There's so much shame about not being able to take care of your own body. People really put a lot of judgment on what you're able to do for fat people. And it's sort of, you're deemed not being a good fatty if you can't do basic self-care things. And it's been very eye-opening to me to look at these situations and think like, Okay, all of these accessibility tools that I link to in that post exist for a reason. They exist because people need them. And whether society says that I'm one of those people that should or should not need that tool, I'm determining that I do need that tool. And I'm going to buy it and I'm going to try it because I want to live my life more comfortably. And I want to take care of myself and like taking care of myself and not avoid taking care of myself because it's so painful and awful and difficult, you know? So it's been very eye-opening to be doing the research and finding what kind of accessibility tools are even out there for you know, extending reach and to work on hygiene. It's been like, it's it's very cool. And if you think of it, it, it that you might need it, it probably exists. That's such a good point that it, it's the fact that it exists means other people need it and use it. And therefore, there's nothing wrong with your body for needing it. And if you think about like, I was when I was reading that post, I was thinking like, my God, what if all these things were just the default? Like, what if every shower head had like a thing that you could take out and use, which I actually have in my shower because I love it. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, it's nice to be able to clean parts of yourself without having to like maneuver in weird ways. Do aerobics. Yeah, like who yeah. does that? And it's it, like, what if, you know, every like loofah or sponge or whatever just had a handle on it instead of the way the sort of default is now? What if it was that was just how things were made? Because like 
other things, you know, like a toaster is kind of always the same shape. And that's just what we think as the default toaster, you know, and what if we could have the default shower curtain be, I don't know, everything I'm thinking of right now is like bath related, but like could be curved so that larger bodies could fit in it. What if everything just was like that already? And it wouldn't affect, it wouldn't negatively affect anyone else lower on the size spectrum either. That's like the wild part. It's just all, it makes things more accessible for everybody. Right. Absolutely. And for all kinds of reasons, that's the thing is like, you have absolutely no idea why someone may or may not need those things. Like a bidet, for instance, I just read like in a group on Facebook that people who get top surgery are talking about how helpful having a bidet is because when you're healing, like it's really hard to reach and take care of yourself. And so like that didn't even occur to me, but like, yeah, that makes sense. (laughs) And imagine if every toilet had a bidet. Right. Incredible. Yeah. If that was just the default for toilets, which I mean, it is, I think in certain parts of Europe, there's just a bidet in every bathroom. (laughs) (laughs) It's wild. It's just, yeah, so much of how our culture is built in this like physical environment way is built to exclude, is built with just one type of person in mind. Right. Absolutely. And I think there's such an opportunity for that, you know, with anyone who's listening to this, who's like a designer, an architect, uh, you know, someone who works on built environment spaces to think about these accessibility issues and to design spaces with people of size in mind, just as we design spaces with people with disabilities in mind now, because we have to, because of the Americans with Disabilities Act, which is awesome. I think there needs to be similar law put in place for accommodating people of size too. And I mean, if you think about it, like just from a capitalism perspective, just for like a motivation for those folks to create things that I need, we fat people have money that we want to spend on products that like actually work for us. You think about Big Fig Mattress, they are like probably the most well-known in the fat community as like the plus size mattress that's like the most supportive and can hold the most weight. And I just think like, wow, they really like came in at such a good time because we all are like sick of first of all, sleeping on beds that just sag and get uncomfortable very easily and also breaking and worry about them breaking, you know, like we want to be able to sleep next to our partners and not worry to be comfortable and get a good night's sleep. So there's definitely like a a market out there that's not being tapped into nearly as much as it should. And I also think that probably speaks to a need for more fat people in positions of power in those types of situations, right? Like people who go to school for industrial design or product design or whatever to like do that work. And I'm sure there are lots of barriers to being in that field already. Like there are in so many fields and specialties, but I think people starting out in their career, especially if they have any interest in doing that, there's such a huge market for it. And yeah, right now it's so underserved that the people who figure out how to do it well are going to be Raking in the dough, probably. Rolling in it. Yeah. (laughs) It's awesome. Well, this is so great. I'm really glad to have this conversation with you. And I feel like there's so much more we could explore on the idea of comfy fat. But I want to definitely encourage everyone to go check out your website and follow your work and your Instagram. I think you do such a lovely job of weaving together the personal and the political and sharing your story in such a vulnerable way. So thank you for being here. Thank you for sharing with us. Thank you so much for having me. Truly, I feel like what an honor to be asked to be on your podcast. And yeah, for asking such like thoughtful questions and wanting to shine light on things like fatness and anti-diet and navigating the world as a non-binary person. Like these are very important issues to me. And I'm just very thankful that you are doing that work. 
Mm, thank you so much. Oh, and let us know what your, your URL is for your website too. I don't want to forget that so people can find you. Sure. I'll do the little pitch. So <laughs> if you want to follow me on Instagram, it's at Comfy Fat Travels. And then my website where I blog about body liberation and fat accessibility and gender and sexuality is comfyfat.com. And if you're looking for any extra content, I do have a Patreon. It's Patreon slash Comfy Fat. And that is where I'm doing all kinds of extra fun stuff. And we have a Facebook group that's specific to Patreon Beebs. So we're having a lot of fun with that. That's awesome. That sounds like a great resource too, because I'm sure people who have more questions about this stuff can go there to get them answered. 100%. Yay. Well, we'll link to all that in the show notes so people can find you and really excited about your work and just to see how it evolves and yeah, just love everything you're doing. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, Christy. So that's our show. Thanks again so much to Jay Aprileo for joining us on this episode. And thanks to you for listening. This episode was brought to you by my forthcoming book, Anti-Diet, Reclaim Your Time, Money, Well-Being, and Happiness Through Intuitive Eating. Now when you pre-order the book, you'll get some sweet bonus content, including a complimentary enrollment to my five-day Taste of Intuitive Eating mini course, a great deal on my 13-week Intuitive Eating Fundamentals course, and an exclusive bonus ebook that's in the works right now with a wealth of actionable tips, a concise guide to the anti-diet philosophy, a timeline of influence influential moments in diet culture, and a never-before-published bonus chapter of Anti-Diet. Just submit your proof of purchase at christyharrison.com slash book bonus to get all of this great stuff. That's christyharrison.com slash book bonus. If you're looking for some practical tips to help you get started on your own anti-diet path, grab my free audio guide, Seven Simple Strategies for Finding Peace and Freedom with Food. Just go to christyharrison.com slash strategies to get it. That's christyharrison.com slash strategies. And then to get full show notes from this episode, including all the resources we discussed, plus a full transcript, just head over to christyharrison.com slash 210. That's christyharrison.com slash 210. And to get the transcript, just scroll down to the bottom of the page and enter your email address. A big thanks, as always, to our editor and sound engineer, Mike Lalonde, our community and content associate, Vinci Chue, and our administrative assistant, Julianne Watasek, for helping me out with all the moving parts that go into producing this show every week. Our album art was photographed by Abby Moore Photography and designed by Meredith Noble. And our theme song was written and performed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, stay psyched. Stay psyched.